You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 3rd of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Because you made sacrifices, there are better days ahead. People need to know that the austerity it led to is over and that their hard work has paid off. Let joy be unconfined. My guests Joy Ladico and Brian Class will be discussing Theresa May's conference speech and the day's other top stories, including the astonishing, astonishing revelation that the Trump family's tax arrangements might have been other than rigorously transparent, the EU's ongoing insistence upon solutions which won't solve the migration crisis, and are we ready for Choose Your Own Adventure television? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Joy Ladico, columnist at the London Evening Standard, and Brian Class, assistant professor in global politics at University College London, and a columnist for the Washington Post. Welcome both. And we will start here in the UK, where Prime Minister Theresa May has, within the last few hours, delivered her keynote speech to the Conservative Party's annual conference. She wasn't consumed by a coughing fit or accosted by some prankster in the crowd, and none of the set fell down. So, right there, an improvement on last year's. But it was a composed performance, punctuated with a couple of decent gags at her own expense, which belied the rancour at large in the party, much of it orchestrated by former Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, whose delusions of Churchillian grandeur, never exactly repressed, threatened to become a dominant theme of these last months pre-Brexit. Joy, first of all, in general, what did you make of May's speech? She actually kind of looked, I thought, like she was enjoying herself, which you you can't say often about her time in Downing Street. No, she didn't. She sort of danced onto stage and then and uh, the little clip you played just showed it was sort of like a sermon performance. And her message was unity. Her message was also austerity is over, which is an attack on um, George Osborne, former chancellor, who has been had been rather vicious towards her. He's now your boss. I didn't say that. You made that connection. <laughs> um, and you know, I think she thought she was she had a strong enough message to knock the kind of Boris show off the front pages for one more day. I also don't think he quite went in for the kill. He didn't say anything particularly interesting or new uh, yesterday other than this rather uh, strange idea that uh, we, that Theresa May could be tried for treason. And he didn't actually even say that directly. That was all inference. So I think she's got away with it. And the unity message was quite an important one because that was her saying to both the left and the right of the party, um, you will be betraying me. And it's that kind of tribal call of politics. Everybody just begins to fall into line when they hear that. Um, Brian, how does this look to an American? I mean, obviously Boris Johnson must seem to you a an inexplicable figure, given that it's impossible to imagine a dissembling philanderer best known for appearing <laughs> on television game shows succeeding in politics where you come from. Completely unheard of in the United States. Yes, no, I mean, I think... He, he was born in the United States, by the way. It, it could yeah. all have been different. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, it looks it looks, I think, as bad as it is from the outside. And I think, you know, it's sort of like Trump in reverse in a way. Trump in the United States 
looks like a disaster to everybody else, but internally there's sort of like 40% that say this guy is great. And with you with the UK with Brexit, it looks like a disaster to everyone else, but still there's like 40% that say this is going great. And in a way, it's because you know you have these internal political divides that people are exploiting. So in this case in the Tory party conference, you have people who are looking at all these rifts in the party, they're being opportunistic around them, and their partisan tribalism is enough to sort of get them through the bigger picture or get them away from the bigger picture, which is this is a disaster and it's not going well. Uh, and so, you know, from my perspective, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing is basically Brexit in a nutshell, which is pander to the different parts of the conservative party while ignoring the sort of collapsing control of Brexit everywhere else where the deal is, is care- you know, it's, we're careening towards a no-deal Brexit, and that could be very, very bad for the national interest. Uh, Joy, do you think Boris Johnson genuinely still fancies his chances? As you correctly uh, observed in your previous reply, even by his standards, he, he is just spouting some extraordinary fact-free nonsense in recent times. Uh, is there a strategy, which is always a weird question where Boris Johnson's concerned, but a, a hope that if he causes sufficient chaos or helps promote or sow sufficient chaos, uh, then things might become such a mess that you could end up with somebody like Boris Johnson as Prime Minister? Well, I, I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago pointing out that he'd actually signed a, a book deal to do this book on Shakespeare, to follow up his book on Churchill. And he really just he'd be, managed to delay it for three years, partly by being Foreign Secretary, partly by not getting around to it. My, my and next I was book's almost, about that late and I didn't yeah. even come up with an excuse that's good. This is almost like an act of procrastination, I, I <laughs> joked, to trying to become Prime Minister so he doesn't actually have to fulfil his deadline. Um, the thing about Boris is the polls keep coming in saying that he's got massive support uh, on the, from grassroots level Conservatives. So he's sitting there looking at this massive number going, well, how do I get through this, um, this maze at the moment of Theresa May standing in my way, uh, no voter confidence in her, um, how do I? How do I kind of? I've got to kind of break the system in order to actually have a but, chance but to it, it, activate this base. Isn't his problem that you're quite right to point out that he's popular with the Conservative membership, but his fellow Conservative MPs don't like him terrifically much, and they're the ones in charge of narrowing down any leadership field to the last two. Okay, so first of all, we've got to get to the leadership field question, and they, uh, the, in order to trigger a leadership ballot, um, the something called the 1922 committee, it's fantastically it, arcane, it, it, it has fantastic. to receive 48 letters, and there's rumours that between 30 or 40 are in. There are five people declared. Um, if we get to that point, it then get, becomes a game as to who gets, who then throws their hat into the ring and it gets narrowed down to two voted for by MPs and those final two go to the country. And Boris has got to, Boris Johnson has got to be one of those two if he wants to go to the country and stand a chance. Will he have enough backing? Well, um, he's not really enamoured himself to a number of uh, MPs, but he does have the kind of right wing of the party who are looking for a leader and looking for somebody who can carry them through. And he's looking like the best shot uh, alongside possibly Jacob Rees-Mogg, who keeps saying he doesn't want to do it. But Wow, that would, that would be a, a choice, wouldn't it? It certainly would. But there is a large rump of the party that would say absolutely no way. And there's also a large rump of the country, should it come to a, a, an election, who would vote incredibly angrily against Boris Johnson, who is literally the most unpopular prime minister, even if he were voted in by loyal conservatives and the rage on the streets if he did get it. Uh, Brian, do you perceive in what Boris Johnson is attempting uh, any uh, echoes of the Donald Trump slash Steve Bannon playbook? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a lot of uh, pandering, some uh, xenophobia baked in. 
And I think, you know, whenever <laughs> Boris Johnson gets tossed around as a serious prime minister candidate, it makes Americans feel a bit better um, <laughs> because, you know, we may have a Corbyn versus Boris Johnson election in the UK. And, and at, at least at, you know, at which point buy gold. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, no, but it, it, it does make you feel a bit better that politics is broken on both sides of the Atlantic. I, I think, you know, Boris Johnson is somebody who is extremely calculating, but tries to look like he's not all the time. And and that's something that Trump maybe is different in that regard. So, so you know, Boris Johnson is somebody who I've been told by, by people in the know that he, you know, ruffles his hair before he goes on TV to look like he's a bit more disheveled than he actually is. Um, I think Donald Trump is somebody who is just sort of exactly who he is publicly, also privately. And I think that's a big difference. I also think that Boris Johnson is probably a lot smarter um, than Donald Trump. And so there's there's a lot of sort of superficial similarities. But in terms of calculating politicians with strategic goals that they seem to have discipline to execute, I think Boris Johnson is very different in that regard. I think, I think the other thing you need to remember about Boris Johnson is he's unlikely to want to go in and negotiate Brexit at this point in time. Even he must have realised well, that that would involve work. Yes, it, he yeah. may have realised that is not his strength. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, what he wants to do is position himself for April for the fallout. So what you what we all interpret as a leadership bid now may in fact be a leadership bid for six months' time. Okay, well, let's look now at the United States and a story from the Knock Me Down With A Feather files. Uh, with all due respect to the diligent reporting of the New York Times, their revelation that President Donald Trump and his family are an appalling bunch of ruthless real estate spivs who have paid rather less than their share of taxes over the years will have surprised few of their readers. Nevertheless, the response by the New York State Tax Department, which has said it will take a long, hard look at the Times story, might yield further amusement. Um, Brian, first of all, was your was your initial reaction to this story uh, to sort of retire to your fainting couch and, 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 and dab at your, your forehead with a lacy handkerchief, so overwhelmed and shocked by it, were you? No, uh, you, know, you know Trump. Trump's shady dealings have been an open secret in New York real estate circles and in the country for anyone who's paying attention. But I think this story is actually extremely important, nonetheless. And the reason is because you actually now have a number to put on it, which is four hundred and thirteen million, which is the amount in today's dollars that Donald Trump got from his family's inheritance and various uh, gifts from his dad. And, you know, Trump famously throughout 2016 said that he got a small loan of $1 million that he had to pay back. <laughs> so he was off by a figure of 413. I just remember what he said that at the time, yes. imagining how it would have gone over in my household had I asked the folks for a, a small, small loan, loan of a yes. million dollars. I know. I mean, it's there, there's so many layers to this. But the, the reason why this is so important is because... Trump, first off, doesn't have as much money as he says he does. He claims $10 billion. Most people say it's just over a billion at most, and he probably has huge liabilities. Um, beyond that, though, the sort of myth of Trump is the self-made man. It is really hard to inherit $413 million and not become a billionaire. I mean, you have to try <laughs> to not do that because you only have to double your money over, you know, over a series of decades. And that's with already owning New York real estate, right? I mean, you have to be a terrible businessman to be where he is with that inheritance. But I re the reason I think this is so crucial is because in 2016, this story didn't come out. And one thing that's becoming more clear, I think, in the minds of many Americans is if this story came out and if the Russians hadn't been involved, is it plausible that 80,000 voters in three states might have changed their mind? And I think the answer to that is yes. And that's a real credibility problem he's getting where 
the more he perpetuates this myth of I'll save America's economy because I'm this business genius, a story like this really dents that with people who are independent-minded thinkers, not with his base, but with the people who are swing voters that might think, okay, Trump is a fraud. Uh, Joy, what do you think? Is this, uh, and it's the, it's the question with every single Trump story, uh, does this change anybody's mind? I mean, as Brian correctly points out, there probably is that rump of 37, 38% of voters who are, are just completely in the tank for Trump. And, you know, even if, as he said himself, if he, you know, the proverbial shot somebody on Fifth mm-hmm. Avenue or whichever street it was, they still wouldn't care. But does a story like this budge anybody? Well, it depends really on whether those people are reading the New York Times, and it was a hell of a long article to read. Um, uh, you would, I think, begin to feel a little bit of rage if you found that your uh, president should have paid half a billion pounds worth of tax and only paid fifty million. I mean, that's a massive uh, tax avoidance um, if he has indeed done that. But the question again is, how do you get this story out into the public? Who is actually going to be surprised by it? Isn't everybody going to say, well, this was his reputation anyway? He's, you know, high rolling, big talking, um, blusterer. That's kind of why he's quite good at making these deals. Um, You know, you want somebody who's exaggerating all the time. Is there an argument, in fact, Brian, and this is something I rather bleakly wonder a lot about uh, Trump's uh, myriad defects, that for actually quite a lot of voters, this plays pretty well. There, there are people who, even if this story reaches them, will think, yeah, he's sticking it to the man by depriving uh, the, the national treasury of several hundred million dollars, which he spent on gold bathroom fittings instead. Well, it's slightly different than that, but it's the same exact concept, which is that Trump, when he was asked about paying low tax rates in the 2016 debate, said that makes me smart. And for some people, this is what they'll see him as. They'll see as this guy knows how to game the system. Now he's going to game the system for us. Uh, and I guess along similar lines, uh, you know, in, in further uh, appalling Trump world developments, Joy, uh, he, he gave a speech at one of his, his weird rallies yesterday into which he meandered into not merely doubting the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford, who accuses his Supreme Court nominee, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, of, of sexual assault, but actually making fun of her. And for about the three billionth time in his political career, he has done something which you would think if any other politician did, I mean, that's it, you're done. And yet, but is there the point that people have missed the last two or three years that a lot of people actually see that and think this is good? Well, he, what he has is sort of lack of respect for particular characters. So he'll have, you know, in the, he has a lack of respect for a complainant against um, his selection for a Supreme Court judge. He has a lack of respect for the IRS, which he now conveniently happens to be in charge of now he's president. Um, he has a lack of respect for Hillary Clinton, for political institutions, for um, people who've been in, you know, all kind of the, the apparatus of state. So this is no, I think this is no, again, it's, it's sort of no surprise in a way. We were sort of almost half expecting it. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that, you know, this is an astonishing fact that Donald Trump attacked and mocked a sexual assault victim while praising and saying he fell in love with the world's worst totalitarian dictator this week in Kim Jong-un. I mean, that juxtaposition should move people's minds, but it won't among his base. What it is doing is it's changing the gender gap in American politics to historic proportions. So the, the, there are people who look at that mocking of that uh, of Christine Blasey Ford who are particularly uneducated men uh, who see it favorably. But the divide between men and women in American politics has never been bigger. And that's going to reverberate in very, very consequential ways in the November 6th midterms coming up. 
yeah, but you also get sort of something like Kellyanne Conway essentially also saying, look, we, we've all been assaulted, but it depends on how you uh, take and how you receive and whether you're going to be angry about it. So, in fact, the women do not automatically line up in the camp against uh, Donald Trump either. You get some various splits within that. Um, and even what was the, the... He won white women too. I mean, yeah, he, he won, won white 53% women. of white women. Um, and what so. was, sorry, what was the name of the tape? I've just forgotten it. But, you oh, know, the, the Access Hollywood tape. Access yeah. Hollywood tape. Again, you know, it didn't actually change the women's vote in particular. There were already women who were sort of perfectly happy that that had happened. Uh, just finally on this, Joy, uh, going back to the New York Times story, as we've been discussing it, it, it was uh, rather an epic, nudging 14,000 words, I think I'm right in saying, which is very unusual for any newspaper to run anymore. What did you make of the, the presentation of it? I, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult thing to get out into the world, especially in the modern media environment. That is a lot to expect people to read uh, in one particular morning. Well, it had to prove its case. So the academically minded readers of the New York Times, of which there are a lot, will have read every single one of those 14,000 words. For the kind of slightly lazier reader, there were nice little video clips that helped you along. For those short of time, there was a, a half hour podcast put out, which explained the genesis of the story and the kind of major details of it. So what they've done is rather brilliantly taken one story, and they've been working on it for two years I think um, uh, and uh, put it out through every single medium so they've really made it work um, for a, a, a broader audience than necessary than, than a regular piece would be Okay, well, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Brian Klass and Joy Ladico. Coming up next, EU plans for offshore migrant processing struggle for a shore to do it on. The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive-through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Joy Ladico and Brian Klaas. And let's look now at Europe's ongoing fantasies of applying the Australian model to the management of illegal migration and or asylum, an idea which always ends up foundering on the difficult-to-avoid fact that Europe isn't Australia, but it doesn't stop anyone trying it again. The latest iteration of this wheeze was branded as Regional Disembarkation Platforms, by which was meant offshore processing centres. Morocco was floated as one possible location for such, but without consulting Morocco, who have now confirmed that they aren't having it. Um, Brian, first of all, if we leave aside the uh, obvious difficulty that nobody actually wants to host these things and nobody can think of anywhere that's feasible to put them, um, is it necessarily a terrible idea to have places uh, one stop before reaching Europe at which migrants and asylum seekers are processed? It's an alluring idea because it basically takes the problem off of European land. But 
I think there's a lot more risk than there is reward here. Um, One thing that people should think about is whether or not governments in this region will use migrants, they'll effectively weaponize migrant flows as leverage with Europe. So either they'll try to extract greater concessions by drumming up new migrant flows, or they will actually encourage them uh, as a a sort of security risk that they can get paid for or get concessions for in security terms. This happened, by the way, after September 11th, when a lot of governments realized that they had something, uh, counterterrorism, to offer to America. And so governments like Uganda, for example, started saying, look, you know, you got to give us a blank check on all these other things because otherwise we'll we'll stop, you know, policing or turning uh, our attention toward potential terrorists. And so in, in a way, the governments are going to really understand that this is a core interest of Europe and they may exploit it for their own game, which might end up not solving the problem and will create new problems as, as well. Joy, why are EU leaders so perpetually entranced by the Australian model? Uh, Of the many reasons, it strikes me as weird. The weirdest one is that they haven't quite grasped that Australia is, one, an island, uh, and two, quite a long way away from anywhere else, whereas the countries that migrants are coming to Europe from are extremely close to Europe, and indeed there's a land border. Uh, yes, but Australia is one country, and you, know, you manage to get your boat up to uh, the edge of Europe, and you know, it's the, the world, also that. or the, the, the Western civilised world, is your oyster. So I think they could see... Not only that is a problem, which you know, which has been uh, Greece and Italy's problem. The migrants arrive there, and then how do you disperse them? And you get to kind of the resistance of Orban. Um, the, um, I mean, that is that is one problem with it. The the other is that how do you then locate you know um, detention centres beyond those borders? Now, I think actually the eastern border is actually not weirdly not too bad. It's those sea flows. But the migration that has been happening from um, Central Africa is going to continue to grow. I mean, the Sahel gets drier, the, um, the land gets drier, people can't farm it. And so although this, this seems like a problem today, um, based on the last three years, in particular Syria it is actually going to be a long-term problem and they've got to fix it somehow or other. All of which is true. And, and that being the case, Brian, does it surprise you that the, the thinking of it has advanced as, uh, what's the opposite of far, as, as unfar as it has? Yeah, I mean, I think that there has been a really astonishingly patchwork response to what is a you know very urgent crisis for a lot of member states of Europe. And there hasn't been uh, any sort of coordinated response. Um, I'm also surprised that there is less appetite for this in North Africa, because I would think that this would be a very strategic way to ingratiate yourself as a government with Europe and to extract concessions. And I think over time, there may be more push for this um, in Northern African countries. The real problem is how you ensure that migrants actually go to these camps. You know, I mean, the, one of the things that's happening is the, the Libyan route, for example, has been, you know, drying up a bit. So now Tunisia is becoming a much stronger venue um, for migrants to sort of launch off of heading towards Europe. And that's been increasing for the last 18 months. So, you know, you build one center, is it just going to be a game of whack-a-mole where the you know migrants are going to sort of just go to the path of least resistance. That seems to be seems to me to be the most likely scenario where no matter what solution uh, comes up, they'll find a way around it. You also you potentially actually have a geographical problem in uh, Morocco because you've got Quetta, which is Spanish territory. Uh, and if that ends up being the route, you end up with a sort of jungle scenario as we had in Calais, where those who can't gain access sort of start kind of literally just trying to break through the borders to get through. So it could get, I mean, for Morocco in particular, just because of that little geographical oddity, it could get quite messy. 
just going back to what you were saying there, uh, Brian, about how they, this could be potentially used as leverage by North African countries, you then get to the question of how does Europe stop North African countries from effectively turning it into a kind of protection racket. There, ha- there have been reports that the EU is talking to Egypt uh, about potentially hosting such centres. Again, how do you work out what is a fair price? I think that's that, that's complicated. I mean, it's a very very good point, a very good question. It's complicated by the fact that the negotiation would be with you know more than twenty member states, uh, twenty seven member states, of the EU. So you have quite a lot of different people. You know, what is the what is the price that this is worth to Hungary versus what it's worth to France? And I think that's the real negotiation sticking point, where you know you may have Egypt demanding one thing and different countries saying this is more or less of a national interest. I also think that it will become a protection racket. I mean, I think, frankly, frankly, that's exactly what's going to happen if this were to be the model. Um, and I think it is very, very easy for countries in North Africa to encourage or at least turn a blind eye to migration flows from the comparatively lawless areas in the Sahel heading up. And as Joy points out rightly, uh, it's only going to get higher in volume as, as years go by. Okay, well, finally tonight, it is an unarguable fact that all interactive entertainment is terrible, which is why any musician who has ever encouraged an audience to sing along should be tarred and feathered and thrown into a pond. Also, if recent history should have taught us anything, it is that little good ever comes of asking the general public for their opinions. Nevertheless, because nobody ever learns anything, it is being reported that in the next series of Netflix's dystopian satire Black Mirror, viewers will, through some or other technological chicanery, be able to choose their own endings. Joy, are you excited about this? Isn't this just a kind of updating of that thing that you know Hollywood has done for ages where you get you get test audiences to look at various endings for films so they can invariably choose the worst soppiest one imaginable? Um I think it's it's a fascinating idea, the idea that you can just start, uh, you know, the, the certain forks in the road and off you go. I mean, when I was young, I used to play a dice game with a book where you would, you know, throw the dice and get lend down one path or another and it takes you straight into the computer game world. The problem is about TV is that we have all been, we all used to watch the same television and have a kind of communal conversation about it. How do you go into the office the next day and say, did you see Black Mirror? Oh, yes, I did. Which ending? Oh, I didn't see that one. Don't tell me about it. And lo and behold, again, we're all kind of divided, divided again into our little atomized world, watching our own version of every TV show. Uh, Joy mentions video games there, Brian. This is an attempt, really, isn't it, to create some sort of hybrid of television which you watch uh, and are presumably entertained by and video games in which you are immersed and are a participant. Yeah, and I think it is sort of uh, part of the trend of consumer catering culture where you sort of want the viewer to dictate things rather than you saying, here's my art, enjoy it. Um, But it has been tried before. I mean, I grew up reading Choose Your Own Adventure books, which basically... Uh, ended with me dying in the Titanic virtually in every, you know. Um, <laughs> Even ones that weren't set on the yeah, Titanic. Exactly. It's always, the, all, all paths lead to death without a lifeboat. But, um, you know, but there was also, my, my favorite example of this in, in film is the 1980s film Clue about the, the board game that in this country is called Cluedo. But uh, there are like five different endings that involve different people being guilty and it actually works quite well. But then it's resolved at the end by saying, here's what really happened. And that's not going to be the case in this. It will actually be, as, as Joy points out, uh, you know, sort of fragmenting realities for people who are fans of the same show. But I quite like the idea that the other Netflix shows will then start doing this. So what happens when you get to The Crown and, you know, Edward VIII <laughs> decides not to abdicate after all? What happens next? And we could have complete alternate histories being played out. That's actually, a, that, I mean, the, 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 the counter-historical uh, is a, a fairly well-worn trope of, of 
television documentary and, and journalism. I can I can see that that would sort of work. I, I don't know. I, I just tend to think it's it's as you were saying, Brian, you get the artist saying, here's my art consumer. I, just as the consumer, I'm also saying, thinking, mate, I'm, I, I'm not here to do any work. You know, yeah. you, you're, you're being paid to entertain and or inform and or amuse me. Crack on. I agree with you. I, I think that it's I think that it's sort of nice to just sort of occasionally be upset by an ending. <laughs> and I think it's good for I think it's good for people to not be always satisfied and get to dictate the terms of their entertainment. But maybe I'm a curmudgeon. I don't know. It, it's going to be something <laughs> else, though, isn't it? That people. I mean, I, I guess it will make a change for a, a lot of uh, you know long-term couples, for example, whose viewing habits may have become ossified into merely arguing over who gets to control the remote control. Well, you're still going to be arguing about it because you're still going to have one screen and well, that, one. This is what I mean. There's now something else they can argue about. It's it's, it's, it's potentially incredibly exciting at that level. This is going to be a short-lived novelty, though, isn't it? Or is this? Are we on the the verge of an entire new genre of television? Well, I think I think as technological change occurs and customization becomes easier, it's going to become much more frequent. I just don't know what you know. Are we going to have holograms in which you can then also choose your own characters and they're in your living room with you? Maybe. I mean, this is something where I think we're going to see a lot of different entertainment options than next five years uh and by the way with with uh, you know what are called deep fakes people can now or we're on the cusp of being able to make your own you know Theresa may speech so we may have an intersection with politics with this not too long from now yeah that's that's totally what i do with that technology <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> surely you want to make a boris speech well i think the russians bit... will like to make both so um well, I, I suppose <laughs> I, unfortunately we only really have about 10 seconds left to decide how we're going to end this program which isn't isn't nearly enough time for for anyone to write in with any suggestions i'll die in a titanic lifeboat so. uh, well yeah that that, <laughs> that, that, that that never fails uh, that does bring us to the end of today's edition of midori house brian class and joy ladico thank you both for joining us the show was produced by ben ryland researched by barbara mamone our studio manager was christy evans more music next at 1900 it's the entrepreneurs there's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 midori house returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 london i'm andrew muller thank you for listening